watched a movie uh, not too long ago uh, that got a little bit of critical flack, but um, but I loved it mostly because it had a positive portrayal of Scripture and Christians. Because I'm kind of a sucker for anything, any movie about a pastor where he looks good. I'm okay. I'm good with it because it's very very uncommon. So uh, this movie is called The Birth of a Nation. It's a movie about a slave revolt that happened in 1831 in Virginia. Um, so 30 years before the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, and it's the story of Nat Turner. Nat Turner is a slave um, who was born into slavery. And early on, the, uh, the self-styled master's wife, um, the white wife, uh, recognized that he was very, very bright. And so she taught him to read, and she taught him to read by teaching him the scriptures. And as he, um, as he grew up, he kind of naturally became... Uh, or. Uh, uh, became the uh, the minister of uh, the uh, for the other slaves in that plantation, kind of holding Sunday services, uh, marrying people, that sort of thing. Um, and so he he was doing that as he grew up. And at the same time, there was there was a lot of unrest and and fear among the white slaveholders. Uh, there was fear of uprisings from the slaves. And so uh, the uh, actually the the local pastor had this brilliant idea to, to uh, get other um, landowners to pay Nat Turner's uh, owner to, to bring him around so that Nat could preach to the other slaves. Because as one slaveholder said, the only thing my slaves fear more than my gun is the gospel. So he wanted him to manipulate God's word in order to keep the slaves in line. So he was made to preach on passages um, having to do with slaves, obey your masters, and, uh, and the justification for enslaving a, a, um, this whole side of the human race. Um, and, and as he does it over and over, you see this journey in him uh, of becoming increasingly just uh, uncomfortable with his role and increasingly heartbroken over the plight of his brothers and sisters who are in captivity and slavery and increasingly convicted that every time there's some uh, passage in the Bible uh, saying that slavery is okay, there are ten of them that say that, sla- that it's totally wrong. And you see this conviction welling in him until, um, until he uh, finally comes to um, a new plantation. He's carted around all the time. A new plantation where he witnesses new atrocities committed against his brothers and sisters. And as they uh, rustle all these slaves out from their squalid conditions and, in, and, and, and push them in front of him, make them sit down and listen or stand and listen. Um, the, the white people stay around to make sure that everything goes according to plan. And he stands there before them, Bible in his hand with nothing to say. He can't bring himself to speak again those words that would justify their existence right now. He can't do it again. Until trembling, he starts out by reading from Psalm 149, rather um, speaking from it. It's, it's, a, it's a passage among many others that he's hidden in his heart. He says, For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with victory. Let his faithful people rejoice in this honor and sing for joy on their beds. May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples. 
to bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron. And as he increases, as he as he continues the passage, tears are streaming down his face. His arms are outstretched. His volume rises. And simultaneously, the people do break out into joyous songs before their God who promises deliverance, who promises that he's a God of justice, who hasn't forgotten them, who will never forget the cause of the lowly and the oppressed. Meanwhile, all the white people are standing around with blank stares. They just don't understand what's happening. They're just happy that he's reading something from the Bible, so it must reinforce their case. They don't know that they are the oppressors. They are the demonic nations that this psalm speaks about, that they are the kings and the nobles who need to be put uh, in shackles of iron. You see, Scripture comes alive for the oppressed. Scripture, the story of God's rescue, is for the weak and the needy. His story only makes sense. It only makes sense when we acknowledge that these, that these sufferings are His to bear and we have to have His help. And so we turn again this morning to, um, to a passage that's for the downpressed. It's for the oppressed. It's for, it's for the sad and the depressed. This passage that Jesus speaks to us from uh, his upper room discourse towards the end of the book of John, before he goes to the cross. It's his last intimate time with his closest disciples. Um, and this comes right in the middle of it. It's this beautiful image of, of uh, the vine, the vineyard, and the vine dressing. We're going to focus, because it's a, the series is on suffering and loss, we're going to focus on the first couple verses about pruning. Jesus wants us to know today for those who are defeated and depressed and disoriented with loss and sadness that your Father will cut you back to keep you close. He wants you to know that your Father will cut you back to keep you close. His knife is so that you can be brought near. There are a lot of stories that people use, a lot of philosophies used to, to, um, to engage suffering in some way that won't utterly defeat us. You know, suffering uh, and loss and difficulty, tragedy, are such a part of our lives, but they're such a misfit for, for who we are that people have come up with lots of ways to deal with these. Um, there's, a, there's a great song that makes so much sense for rich white people, and it's beautiful. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah, I mean, if you like live on Lookout Mountain and never lock your doors, that can play, right? What doesn't kill me makes me stronger. I'll be okay. But if you live in a like in a in a country torn by civil war, where people are you know are kidnapping your children and your house gets destroyed, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't play, right? That's insulting. Somebody would say that is hope for the world. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Just keep going. You could be, uh, there's other words like, uh, like Job's friends that I think is still very popular today. If something bad happens, you probably deserved it. There's something you did wrong. There's some sin that you need to confess, some, um, some weakness you need to solve in order to, um, in order to fix this. I think anybody who says that probably hasn't paid much attention to history. 
When you look at any, uh, anyone who's made significant sacrifice for the welfare of others out of love is, uh, has faced tremendous suffering. When you look at, uh, just quick ones, Martin Luther King Jr., Gandhi, Susan B. Anthony, um, maybe Jesus. Like this idea doesn't play at all. There must be something wrong with me if there's something wrong in, the, uh, in my life. I need to fix it. This story has a different, a different take on things that make us uncomfortable, a different take on loss in our lives, a different take on, on suffering and tragedy. It's not the only take the Bible gives us, but it's, it's what Jesus has for us this morning. He says, your loving Father cuts you back to keep you close. Pruning is God, God taking away some relationships, situations, opportunities. He's taking them out of your life so that you may grow near to Him. That's what this pruning is. So that you can, um, as the passage says, abide or remain in Him and bear good fruit. One of my favorite little sufferers has always been Simba from The Lion King. I love him. That was one of those you know, uh, movies that, uh, that was so big, that was really fun for me as a kid. Um, uh, you know, the story of Simba, he's a, he's a little lion cub, and he gets into a lot of mischief. And this one kind of adventurous mischief he gets into, uh, his father, the king, has to come and rescue him. And in the midst of that rescue, his father dies. His mother very unwisely allows young Simba unsupervised time with his uncle Scar. No good parent would ever do that. A hole in the plot, I say. Character development. Scar convinces him because Scar wants the power. He wants to be next in line as king. He convinces Simba that he must leave, that it's his fault that his father is dead. And he's got to flee, and so he does. And Simba runs, uh, runs away from home. And he runs into his, uh, his good friends, Timon and Pumbaa, the carefully, careless, uh, fun-loving pair who convince Simba of this wonderful truth that death is just part of life. That this is just the circle of life going around and around. And as, uh, as it said in the movie, uh, the lions eat the gazelles, but then when the lions die, their body becomes the grass that the gazelles eat. And isn't that wonderful? And the, and the whole thing is played to rousing music, right? And you get this, blah, 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 and like a crescendo. And, and then Simba thinks, I know what I'll do. I've just learned that there's a circle of life, and I'm this very brief spark that has no real beginning and, 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 and no purpose or, or anything outside of me, but I've got this one teeny tiny little life that has no significance. I know what I'll do. I'll go risk it for other people. It doesn't make any sense. This is bad writing, Disney. Sorry, but you covered it up with like a really good soundtrack and good characters. So we're like, yeah, go Simba. You are meaningless. Go throw your life away. This doesn't make, it's a story that doesn't go anywhere, that doesn't give us power for loss or, or grief. It's going from nothing to nothing. But you and I, we don't get the rousing music in our lives, do we? The, the, the drum roll that leads us into action out of despair. I think um, my, uh, my brothers and, and fathers in the congregation, 
why is it that you and I feel so much pressure? Why do we have to fix everything? Why, I mean, would, it, would you just love it if your wife's emotional stability didn't rest squarely on your shoulders? It doesn't. But if you're anything like me, you think it does. And that's immense pressure. Wouldn't you love it if, the, if your family's finances and their well-being didn't hang squarely around your neck? Why are you and I so eager for someone, anyone, to say to us, man, man, your life is hard. You work really hard. You deserve a break. You deserve it. You've earned it. Why would that be such sweet balm for us? Why do we turn quickly to giving ourselves that break? That second beer, it's not really because it's a finely crafted IPA. Buying all those things for our hobbies. Staying up late so you can visit those pages on the, web, on the internet. That you think will give us, will give you life, will give you that that treat that that someone acknowledges me, someone cares about me. Why do you feel so alone in these burdens? I think, like Simba, we've got an, uh, an insufficient story about the difficulties in our life, the pressures and the losses in our life. We think if I do my part, God will do His part. And then everything should be fine. I should have, I should have uh, well-behaved children. I should have enough financial stability to buy the things I want. I should have a marriage that if it's not peaceful, at least it's quiet. I should have a, a good job. You know, when those things don't happen, when, when, that, when, that, when we experience loss in those areas, we have an insufficient story that says, well... God's not keeping up his part. I guess it's up to me. He's gone. He's cut me off. When I didn't get that promotion, I didn't get that relationship, I didn't get that that treat. He's cut me off, and I'm all alone in this, and it's up to me. Why did they have to make, or why did somebody think, I know what will make good money? A movie called Bad Moms. Why did that movie play in our culture? You know, you could not have released that movie, I don't know, 50 years ago or whatever. Mary Tyra Moore would not have starred in Bad Moms. It wouldn't have made any sense. Nobody would have cared. But for some reason, this studio said, I've got a good, entertaining, money-making venture. We'll make this movie called Bad Moms because there's this, there's this mom, and she realizes she's, like, driving her kids to soccer practice and piano and Chinese lessons, and she's on the PTO, and she's working and she's got a deadbeat husband. And all of a sudden, she just throws up her hands and says, I don't care anymore. I don't care about the pressure from these other moms. I don't care that they think I'm bad. I, I'm just going to be a bad mom. And uh, riotous and boring uh, adventures ensue. But somehow, somebody said, this, is, this will play. This will make sense to moms. This pressure that they feel. This pressure to always be doing something, um, to, to always 
feel like if something goes wrong, if things aren't predictable and smooth in my family, then i got to fix it. If, if my kids aren't doing well, then it's probably something I'm doing wrong. And it's some strategy I just don't know yet that I can find out. And maybe if I, if I end up losing my temper at the end of a long day of working and wiping, and, and what I need is more sleep. That's just a little more sleep, a better, a, like a couple more strategies, and some good hard work. Does anybody see that those all don't fit? That you can't, like, be present for your kids? You can't do all those things. Work a lot harder and sleep more. It doesn't work. Why is, the, why is it on your shoulders? Why do you take that? Why, when, some, when things aren't moving smoothly in your family, do you believe there must be a deficiency in me? Some way I'm failing everyone. Well, I think it's a similar story with a different interpretation. I need to do my part. God needs to do his part. Then everything will be nice and pretty and happy. And every time I establish traditions or a pattern in my family, we will all do them and they will happen. And when that doesn't happen, somebody's not doing their part. It must be me. It must be my fault. Why is depression on a stark rise, especially on a, on a, among a younger generation? I would say, I mean, probably somewhere around my age and down, right? Depression is on this steep rise. Why is that? Why is that? Why, when faced with loss, do people become defeated? I think it's because we believe in progress. Our story is not I do my part, God does his part. Our story is progress. That with scientific advancement and, and human understanding, we can really defeat what's wrong in the world. And you know what? I can defeat what's wrong in me. We believe in a story of progress. If only I do the right research. If only I take one more personality test and understand myself a little bit better, then I'll choose a career that will be... Um, engaging enough so I'll never get bored and I'll choose relationships that are sturdy enough that will never let me down because I'll know where to go and what to do. If only I gain understanding enough, I will gain this progress so that nothing lets me down. Well, of course that doesn't happen. That's not a story that can hold you in this world. So depression comes along just as surely as the loss. John Newton was an um, Anglican minister years and years ago. He wrote Amazing Grace, among other hymns. He says this. I'm going to read this quote. It's a little bit too long, but here we go. Though he put forth his hand and seemed to threaten our dearest comforts, yet when we remember that it is his hand, when we consider that it is his design, his love, his wisdom, and his power, we cannot refuse to trust him. There is no sting in your rod nor wrath in your cup, only medicine to promote our chief good. God will suffer nothing to grieve us but what he intends to employ as means for our greater advantage. How do we get from, it's all my fault and I need to carry the weight, it's all God's fault and I'm cutting him out of my life, 
to, to this, where we say anything that is lost is his cutting back to keep me close. You know, it seems trite. It seems like in Romans 8, 28, Band-Aid, all things work together for the good, which is very true, but it feels like a Band-Aid that covers over the rotten, festering wound underneath. But listen, just I'm going to give just a bullet point view of John Newton's life. This is the, that is the theology he arrived at through script, study of Scripture and through this life lived. His mother died, John Newton's mother died, two weeks before his seventh birthday. His father drowned in a swimming accident one month after John turned 25. In 1754, John had an episode of epileptic seizures that ended his seafaring career just after he got married, and he was now jobless. He and his wife could not have their own children. His first adopted child, Eliza, died of tuberculosis at age 14. His second adopted daughter, Betsy, had to be institutionalized for depression in a place made famous for its name, Bedlam. His 27-year friendship with suicidally depressed William Cooper was, as Newton said, a very great trial to me. His adulthood was stained by ceaseless memories of brutality and abuse he both watched and committed against African slaves. From 1746 to 1747, he himself was enslaved in Genoa, West Africa, for 18 months. This took place on Plantain Island. The other slaves pitied him because what they saw him go through. He was horribly tortured and abused by an African princess. He wrote that he was, quote, depressed to the lowest degree of human wretchedness. Yet this is a man who can say there is no sting in your rod nor wrath in your cup, only medicine to promote our chief good. Our God cuts us back to keep us close. His knife brings us near. Pruning is not punishment. Our Father is the vine dresser, says Jesus. He's the gardener. And this image is meant to bring to your mind Mr. Miyagi. Karate Kid is, is referenced way too often from this pulpit. And I'm sorry for that. I think you had like two months ago or something did a Karate Kid. But it's formative for me, so it comes to mind quickly. Mr. Miyagi, Daniel stumbles into Mr. Miyagi's workshop while Miyagi is, is uh, working on his bonsai trees. You remember this scene? And he's got this tiny pair of scissors. And he's really close up to the tree, and he's snipping a little here, a little there. Daniel comes in and, says, and is questioning him about the trees. How did you get him to do that? Miyagi trained, snipped here, tie there, long tie. Daniel says, wow. Miyagi you know, offers to show him how to do it. No, no, I don't want to mess anything up. No, no, come, Daniel, come. Sits him down in front of the tree. He says, close eyes. Daniel closes his eyes. But he closed both his eyes, even though he's only commanded to close one. Close eyes. Clear mind. Only tree. Make perfect picture. Down to the last pine needle. Wipe mind clean of everything else but tree. Nothing exists in the whole world. Only Father is the vine dresser. 
that exercised his pruning, his patience, and long-suffering. This picture is intended to show us that our God is so slow and so purposeful. A vineyard is not something you can plant and harvest in a couple years. It's not like strawberry plants. You can throw them in the ground, and that summer you got a bunch of plants. A vineyard is something that took generations to reach its full fruitfulness. A vine was something that a gardener pruned carefully and slowly, not demanding fruit right away, but, but expecting fruit in its time. Your father is so patient with you. He's so patient with you. In this time, uh, in the first century, in, in this area, the, uh, a pruning tool would have been basically a, a, a knife with a, a slight hook on it. So, you know, four-inch knife. I think that what that shows us is this, this vine dresser, this gardener, um, approaches patiently, wisely a branch. vine dresser is never perfect in when he prunes. This image that Jesus gives us is supposed to stir our imagination and stir our hearts to know we have a patient and wise and very near and, and, and um, very near Father Gardener. John Campbell uh, who many of y'all know is uh, part of our congregation. Was uh, I was at his house and we were looking at his landscaping. And I don't know if a lot of y'all know, but John uh, loves his landscaping. He loves just kind of it's kind of his hobby and it's beautiful. And so I was talking to him. I said, "Hey, John, I just planted this kind of bush and it's growing. What do I do?" And it's this flowering bush. And he says, uh, "You know, well, I want to keep this bush about this size. You know, just want as many blossoms as I can get." And so. What you need to do is come here and you bend down and see this branch. That one's getting longer. It's kind of outside the realm. So I can't just clip it right in the middle. It would just shoot out from it. I clip it back here, back to this little bud. That's where I'm going to clip it. But this one is growing kind of across that other one. So I'm going to take this one and I'm going to clip it this way. So the little one is going to grow this direction. And this one over here, it's got three buds on it, but I'm afraid this will be smaller buds. So I'm going to just, if I don't, so I'm going to clip it back. I said, wait, John, hold on. Every one of them? Every branch? He said, well, yeah. Yeah, every one of them. Nope. Give me those big loppers. Our God is nothing like me in the garden. He is near. He's careful. He's surgical even. He's not chopping away. But how do we know? You know, this passage talks both about pruning that will lead to fruitfulness, but it also talks about cutting cutting off. Cutting off. How do we know if we are getting cutting cut, cut back or cut off? Because ultimately, that's what we fear in our losses, right? When we face the unexpected, when we face tragedies, the ultimate fear is that, well, that well, I will be alone in this, that there is no future for what's happened to me that I'm going to be thrown into the pile and burned because of this. 
Jesus wants us to know very quickly in this passage. He says, um, he talks about the pruning, that there will be pruning. And immediately following that, he says, but you, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. You, the gardener, has already looked and said, I want that one. That branch I will not lop off. That branch I will tenderly cut back. I have a friend who bought a house not too long ago, and the, um, it was one of those houses where the uh, where it just hadn't really been kept very well. And the, the shrubs in the front, you know, they're supposed to be like you know, three or four feet high maybe at the top, were like eight feet tall. And then these evergreens that only grow, they're supposed to be bushes, but they're gigantic. And they only grow, you know, the green on the, out, on the very, very outside of them. And so he's like, man, I don't want to just, uh, I don't want to go to the cost of buying new, you know, ripping these out, buying new bushes, all this stuff. I'll, uh, let me just see what it would take to get these to the right size. I, I don't know what to do. So he calls in this expert, and the guy uh, says, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. You can prune these back. You can prune them back, and, and over time, you know, not too long, they'll kind of, you can help them be alive and thriving and prune them back slowly, 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 down, 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 year after year, until they're at the right height. You can do that for sure. And my friend says, great. All right, so uh, tell me, just walk me through it. He says, okay, good. So you're going to want to clip about two inches a year, a year, about two inches a year. And then, you know, after 10, 12 years, they're going to come, they're going to be down to where you want them. 10 or 12 years to prune this bush back to where it needs to be. And my friend says, "Uh, I think I'll rip them out by hooking a chain from my car to those things and driving. And that's what he did. It was awesome. But our God says to us, you may be a wild vine. You may be out of control. You may be producing a lot of leaves and no fruit. You may be choking out other parts of the vine. But you, you are clean. You are mine. You are mine if we have accepted this gift of Jesus that he offers. This, he says, the word that I have spoken to you, the action on your behalf, this gift is that Jesus, Jesus on the cross was punished so that you and I could be clean. Jesus, it says, um, Scripture tells us, uh, as for his descendants, who can say? For he was cut off from the land. Jesus was cut off so that you and I could experience cutting back and not being cut off. We, you and I, turn away from our suffering. We turn away. We turn our back to our Father in the midst of our loss because we think it's His fault or our fault. But either way, we're in this alone to fix it. But Jesus, in the midst of the wrath of God and the immense suffering, turned His face directly towards the Father, and the Father turned His back on Jesus so that He will never turn His back on you. When the blade came for Jesus, it was not tender pruning, but the cutting off of the fruitless branch that you and I deserve. If we are in the vine, if you and I are in the vine, if we have put our trust in Jesus, then we are clean, we are held, protected, wanted, secure in His life-giving vitality. So, my brothers and fathers, you're not alone. You're not alone. 
and the pressure. You're not alone in the loss. You've not been abandoned. In fact, He is nearer than you can imagine. There's one who gives guidance towards fruitfulness. He's not left you to your own devices. And in fact, in the end of this passage, Jesus says, I speak these words so that my joy could be in you and your joy could be complete. The joy of the Almighty God of the universe seems so much better right now in this moment than some, uh, some website that I might want to visit or something that I could buy for myself or some drink that, that can help me to forget my troubles. He offers you sturdy joy. Mothers, you are free to be a bad mom. Not because the movie gives you permission or because it's cool right now to talk about being messy and being okay with that, but because you have, you have a vine dresser who says, that one's mine, and I'm going to keep working on her. I'm going to stay faithful to her, and I'm going to be patient with her. And you can expect loss. You can expect difficulty. You can expect that the pruning will happen. So that when the patterns are thrown off and when the peace is disturbed and when things don't work out, you, we don't have to be completely disoriented. We can say, this is the Father. He's stirring it up again. And you have one question for him. My Father Gardener, what do you have for me in this? What do you have for me in this? And to my young brothers and sisters, there is progress in this life. God is giving us a progress in this in this passage, a progress towards our fruitfulness, but it's a progress that's, that goes fruitfulness, then pruning, then fruitfulness, then pruning. And there's, there's always going to be that loss. There's always going to be that cutting back. So you're not defeated or depressed when it happens. What happens if all of us believed that together? You know, one vine, one branch can produce in a season, you know, three, let's say three clusters of grapes. So enough for a family at a couple meals, maybe, to have some nice refreshing grapes and table grapes. Good. But a whole vineyard, a whole vineyard can produce enough wine to make an entire village happy, to throw a big party. What happens if we all believe this, if we all are not thrown off when suffering comes, when loss happens, when we are cut back, we're not totally dismayed. What happens if we turn to each other in those moments and use the resources God has given us? What happens if we turn to our Father and say, I acknowledge, even though it feels like silence, that you are here with me, both hands caressing me and carving gently and wisely on me, for my good, for my complete joy, and for your glory, I trust you. What happens if you came next week when we celebrate communion, this meal that we celebrate together that binds us together and binds us to Christ, and you say, I have to have these resources because this cutting back is, I, I'm not going to live with too much cut off of me. I need the vitality of the root to come through me and push good fruit out of me. That is a community that is abiding, as Jesus said here, that is remaining, 
that's a community. That's a community that can throw a party in the midst of loss. That can grieve deeply and laugh heartily. That can have great joy, full joy, in the midst of a season of pruning. Amen.